Our sermon passage comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, starting in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And, they, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven. We give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would work in us by the power of your spirit as we consider these things that Jesus says and shows us. And I pray that you would teach us to humbly walk with you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. On July 18th in the year 64 AD, a fire started burning through Rome. And this fire burned for nearly six days, and it burned upwards of two-thirds of the city. Which imagine if two-thirds of Yakima wiped out. And many people, in trying to figure out what caused this fire, started to blame the emperor of the time, Nero, for this fire. It's very likely that he did cause it, because he had these grand visions of rebuilding Rome in his own image. Um, But we can't say for certain if he did, but... As the heat started building against him and he started, you know, getting in trouble, he decided he would find someone new to blame for the fire. And so he chose the Christians. And, you know, the Christians, the, the area that the Christians lived in Rome was largely unaffected by the fire. And so he said, hey, the Christians, they, they're the ones that burned our city down. And thus began one of the most vicious eras of persecution that the church has ever experienced. You know, Nero would feed them to lions, burn them at the stake, and also burn them on crosses and use them as human torches for his parties. It was brutal. And it's to that persecuted church in Rome that the Gospel of Mark was first written. You know, and, you know, the first words that Jesus says in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark are this. He says, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? The kingdom of God is coming. Well, if you're a Christian in this time, this doesn't feel like the kingdom of God was imminent, does it? Christians being burned and tortured doesn't sound like the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming. Nero's Rome doesn't look like the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. You would think that the Christians in that time would begin to question, you know, maybe this thing isn't as good as Jesus said it was. Maybe Jesus wasn't telling us the truth, but they remained resolute. They remained strong throughout all of that. Well, how? Because in Christ, their, their visions of restoration have been redefined. He redefined for them what, what victory looked like. And this is what the gospel Mark is trying to teach and encourage that church as he was trying to encourage the disciples and he's trying to encourage us that this truth that restoration comes through suffering and death. 
And because they believed that this would happen, that they would indeed have to suffer and die, they were not surprised when suffering came for them. I mean, this is how Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here to live. He's trying to help them adjust their expectations that ultimate victory that can only come through Jesus comes through suffering and death. You know, last week when we talked about the transfiguration, we beheld Christ in all his glory as they saw Jesus transfigured. You know, that transfigured glorious Jesus is the one that, that the disciples had expected to come. And in this turn of events, as they're walking down the mountain, Jesus is reorienting their expectations of just what Jesus, the Messiah, has come to do and, and, what, is, and what it actually means to follow him. Yes, Jesus has come, and he will restore all things. He is the king of kings, but he's also come to suffer and die. I think, and as we engage with this this morning, our own expectations of what we think will happen to us when we follow Jesus are going to be challenged, too. I think it's easy for us to expect that our lives are going to be easier when we follow Jesus. I mean, who in the right mind would follow someone who made your life more difficult? And to be sure, there is actually nothing greater than following Jesus, and he does bless his children, but there's also nothing harder than following Jesus as well. And what Jesus is showing his disciples and showing us is that the pathway to restoration goes through the grave. And although you might not want to hear that right now, what I hope you see by the end of this is that this is the best news possible for us. And so as we consider the restoration of all things, we're going to find two ways that Christ brings about restoration The first is through death. Christ brings restoration through death. We see this pick up here in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now here, you know, the disciples, they had just experienced one of those, an actual mountaintop experience. They're coming down. They must be extremely excited what they were able to see. And they they, got to be thinking, I can't wait to tell everyone what just happened to us? And then Jesus, you know, does his Jesus thing and he says something weird and he says, yeah, don't tell anyone about this until the Son of Man rises from the dead. And there's two aspects of what Jesus says in this simple sentence that really stand out for us. For one, the title that he uses for himself, Son of Man. Son of Man is a reference to Daniel's prophecy about the Messiah who would come. In Daniel 7, it says this about that Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is what the disciples had in mind. They knew this word from Daniel 7. So when he says, son of man, this is what they're thinking of. This glorious moment of this kingdom that's not going to be destroyed. And that transfiguration that they just witnessed was what they would have expected of the son of man. It was a son of man moment. He's the one. His kingdom's not going to be destroyed. It's this global mission. It's not just the nation of Israel, but it's all people that are going to be restored. And the disciples love it when Jesus kind of shows his power in that way and uses this title because it... Because it means that this Daniel 7 moment is about to happen. The divisions of Daniel are actually coming coming to fruition right before their eyes. And they're excited. And and Jesus said, they can't tell anyone until what? Until you rise from the dead? You know, they probably had that look on their face like, "Did did I hear that right? Did he really just say that? 
You do know, Jesus, that in order to rise from the dead, you have to die. You just said that you were the son of man, and his kingdom does not include kings dying. His kingdom is forever. His nation is forever. You can't die, Jesus. That's not in Daniel 7. And, and so as they're kind of processing this prospects of Jesus dying, they push back on Jesus a little bit. It's subtle, but it's there here in verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? You know, the, the first time Jesus mentioned that he would die and rise from the dead was uh, just a chapter ago in chapter 8. And you remember how Peter responded? He says he rebuked Jesus. And then Jesus says the famous words to, back to Peter, uh, get behind me, Satan. So last time, you know, Jesus predicted his death, it didn't go so well for Peter when he challenged him. And so now the disciples, he's trying a more gentle pushback. It's a new tactic. It's a little bit more passive aggressive. He's thinking about, it says that they were, they were wondering, what does this rising from the dead mean? And so they, they ask him this question to go a different way about it. And in their argument now, Elijah's on the brain. Remember, they just saw Elijah with Jesus in the transfiguration. And so, they, hey, let's, let's talk about Elijah. What about that prophecy about Elijah, which we find at the end of Malachi? You know, at the end of, at the end of Malachi, we learn that Elijah's going to come and, and, and prepare the way for the day of the Lord. So, so the Jewish mind, they were looking for Elijah to come because they knew that the Messiah would follow and it meant that, that, and after the Messiah came, it meant all that Daniel stuff, Daniel 7 stuff would happen. And so they bring this up because in their minds, Elijah was not expected to be marked by suffering and death. For them, Elijah was the sign that, that, the, that the new kingdom would come. This, the, the inauguration of the end times. You know, it would be like for us, you know how we expect Jesus, when he comes back, we expect Jesus to restore all things. And, uh, and it would be like for us if someone said to you, what if I told you that when Jesus returns, you're going to actually suffer and die? You would think that this is crazy talk. This is kind of what the disciples are hearing when Jesus talks to them about dying. They're like, this is crazy talk. This is not what the Messiah does. They expected that transfiguration moment of glory to, to come. They did not expect suffering and dying. And so the disciples are probably a little frustrated with Jesus. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He performs all these miracles, right, over demons, over diseases, over creation. He takes them up on a mountain. They see his full glory. And now he says this. They figure that God is about to restore all things, and now Jesus is talking about dying again. This is not what the disciples expected. And so they, they try to get their point across by appealing to what was expected of Elijah. Because what was expected to happen to Elijah was expected to happen to the Messiah. So maybe this would set Jesus straight. And Jesus responds to them like this in verse 12. He says, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and, that, and they did to him whatever they pleased. That is, is it written of them. So he says, listen, I'll grant you that prophecy about Elijah. He does come first to restore all things, but you've misinterpreted what restoration looks like. Because it also includes this prophecy from Isaiah about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. So he continues, he says, Elijah has come. You know, and in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is more explicit in Matthew 11. And he actually says that John the Baptist is Elijah. John the Baptist is the one that's come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he says, and how did they end up treating him? 
But it says they, they did to him whatever they pleased, which unfortunately for John the Baptist, it meant that they put his head on a platter. And he died as party entertainment. What happened to the one that you were appealing to, he died. And just like they did it to him, they're going to do it to me. So Jesus is beginning to reorient their vision of what restoration looked like. He's reorienting their vision of what the Messiah has come to accomplish. He's shattering their expectations of what it means to be victorious. The restoration of all things comes through suffering. As one pastor puts it, his pathway of triumph and restoration runs through the grave. He says, if you want to follow me, this is going to be true of you as well. And to us, this kind of thing sounds like bad news, right? Nobody wants to suffer and die. We have enough of that already in our lives, right? We turn to Jesus, actually, in fact, for relief from our suffering and dying, right? We turn to him for exactly for the promise of new life. This version of restoration that we're talking about, that Jesus is talking about, does not sound like good news to us. It doesn't sound like new life to us. It actually sounds like the life that we all experience uh, in our day-to-day living, What we find here is this is actually incredibly good news because the grave is the only path that leads to the fullness of restoration, which is found in the resurrection, right? There is no resurrection without death, which leads to the second aspect of restoration here, which restoration comes through resurrection. If we go back to the beginning here, verses 9 and 10, it says, And they were charged coming down from the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead meant. Right? They're so focused. When he said the rising from the dead, all they could think about was that he's going to die. They were so focused on the death part that they, they didn't take the time to consider this rising from the dead part. It might be a key aspect of what Jesus is trying to tell us. The Son of Man isn't just going to die. You know, any, anyone can just die. But he's going to rise from the dead. Right? Death isn't the point. It isn't the end. Resurrection is. And this is not an accident, but it's the actual means by which Jesus comes to restore all things. And it's, in fact, the only way. Because the only way that the curse and the stink of, of death is broken is through dying and rising. And in this, the chains of, of death are, are broken. It can no longer do its job of keeping people under its spell because it has been defeated. And Jesus went into the grave to defeat death. But the disciples are stuck thinking, right? It's a choice. It's either restoration or suffering. Which, which is it, Jesus? Is it the renewal of all things or is it death? And the answer that Jesus gives us is it's both and. It's actually only through death that you can have resurrection and the fullness of restoration. And this is what makes a cross, which behind me is this ancient symbol of torture and death. It's insane that it's our symbol of hope, but it's a symbol of hope because Christ rose from the dead. The pathway to resurrection leads through the grave. This is, in fact, exactly what Paul teaches us in his Letters in many places, but one of his greatest chapters on the resurrection is in 1 Corinthians 15. He begins by talking about, as Adam brings death, so in Christ triumphs, Christ triumphs over death that we get life. And in verse 42 of this chapter, he says this. He compares a death to the planting a seed. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. But what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised 
and power. Right? What he's trying to tell us is you're not yet fit for the glory that awaits us. The, the perishable can't inherit the imperishable. But behold, you will be transformed. Like a seed is planted in the ground and, and upsprouts a tree. So you're going to be planted in the ground and upsprouts new life. Transformation happens through the grave. And in fact, the only way to be fit for restoration, the restoration that you all long for, is to die. And it tells us in that, also in that chapter that Jesus is the first fruits of this. He is the first day of the new world. His resurrection was the blossom of a harvest that will bring about a new heavens, a new earth. And what will happen to him will happen to all who follow him. They too will be raised to new life. All things, all creation needs to be born again. All creation needs a rebirth. The corrupt must die to be glorified. It must go to the grave so that all that is incorruptible might rise. Restoration comes through resurrection. The only way to experience resurrection is to first experience death. You know, the Puritan poet George Herbert says it like this. He says, death used to be an executioner, but the resurrection has made him a gardener. What a vision. What a profound transformation. Now death itself is transformed in the resurrection. All that has been corrupted by the fall was made new in the resurrection of all things. And now even death itself is a mockery. And at the end of that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, you get those words, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's been removed. It no longer has power over you. It is the last enemy that is defeated. More than that, death itself is actually transformed into an agent of life. This is powerful. And this only happens through Christ's death. So the question, what does this mean for us? When, when it's not like you and I can practice death and resurrection in our daily lives, you know, it's like you can't, you, know, you can't just test this out. You only die once. So what does this mean for us now? This future hope, this future glory. What does it mean that death has been utterly defeated and transformed? I think there's two aspects of this for us. I think the most immediate answer is that because of the realities of the resurrection and the reality of death being defeated, you don't need to fear it. You know, one pastor, in speaking of this, asked the question, why is it that the safest church of all time in the Western world is so scared and paranoid of death? Why are we who should fear the least, why are we the ones who fear the most? And he suggests it's because we've bought into this lie that life as we know it is maybe as good as it gets. That maybe... Maybe our visions of the good life have been filtered down through remodeled kitchens and flat screen TVs. Not that these things are, are bad, but that they've captured us in our imaginations of, of the end times. And we think that it is as good as it gets. And so we're scared of losing all the things that we have acquired. Friends, this is not the good life. Our hopes and our dreams and our great inheritance is not found on this side of death. And if we believe this, we would laugh at our own graves. You know, the, the early church that was persecuted in, in Rome, do you know what happened to them? I'm guessing many of you likely do. Uh, it's fun to read about. You would think that the persecution would have crushed them and that Christianity would have vanished from the world, but actually it had the opposite effect. It caused the church to explode with growth because they understood the hope of the resurrection means that you must first die. And you can read these stories where they would sing Ancient hymns as they're being burned at the stake. They would laugh at Caesars in his face while they died. And they had this profound confidence about them. Well, where did they get that? They knew that the Christ who died lived again. And so would all those who trust in him. 
They believed that death would not be their end, but their beginning. And they knew that Jesus would wake them from their death. Do you believe this yourself? Do you really believe that this is true? Remembering the reality of the resurrection will help us to live life without, die, without fear of, of death. So that's, I think, the first immediate application is that, is that for us. The second way that I think this affects us is that our dying and rising isn't just something that happens at the end of our lives, but it happens in our daily lives now. Right? You have been born again, your new creation, and you're called to put your sin to death. You know, one, one writer, Jack Miller, who speaks, who has a book, great book on this topic called The J-Curve, which I commend to all of you. He puts it like this. He says, if you put your faith in Christ, you have already been resurrected, even though you are not yet fully resurrected. And what he's saying is that, listen, if, if your faith is in Christ, you are already born again, even though you still live in a world that's marred with sin. And as we are united to Christ in his resurrection and in his death, every time we die to ourselves, every time we serve others, every time we submit to him, every time we love others, we are actually reenacting the, the, dying, le, the dying love of Christ. And as we learn to you know, die to ourselves, as we learn to take up our cross and follow Jesus, we are also raised with him. Right now, every moment of your suffering that you experience on this side of eternity is now transfigured in Christ because all who die with him also rise with him. And this dying and rising daily with Christ is this, this every moment practice that helps us believe this profound truth that death is gain. The more we learn to die to ourselves and live to Christ, the more we find that death is gain. And when we die to ourselves in our daily living now, we learn to trust in our future resurrection as we experience resurrection moments now. And this is what Jesus is showing his disciples. Listen, their lives were marked by much suffering. You read Paul. It was marked by suffering event after suffering event after suffering event. But he gladly gave up everything because of his hope of resurrection. And as we experience this in our daily lives, all our sufferings, all your pains are not the end of your life. But resurrection is. Every suffering you experience is actually transfigured and and transformed into a, a resurrection moment. And now, because of this, it isn't just the end of of our life and death that's been turned into a life-giving agent, but every moment of suffering in your life is now actually an opportunity for life. Imagine if what I'm saying right now is actually true. It, It changed your life, right? Not being fearful of death, knowing that every pain that you experience, every pain that you experience is an opportunity for life in Christ. This is profound. Do you believe this? The good news of the resurrection is that the sting of death has been taken away. It is no more. Jesus took that sting on himself so that you don't need to fear, but you can live and walk with him. We're simply called to walk faithfully, knowing that suffering and death will come for you, but it will not be the end of you. Glory will be the end of you. May we be a people who believe and walk in this profound truth, and may our expectations of life be reoriented around the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, what a profound thing to meditate on, that you went into the grave and tasted death so that you may redeem us. 
Help us to believe this truth. Help us to walk without fear, but knowing that you have transformed everything in our lives. And in that, you're bringing restoration to all things, making all things new. Help us to walk in faith. In the name of Christ, we pray, amen.